Such a great family. Tim and I talk regularly, and while we miss them a great bit around here, I think God has them right where He wants them. And we're excited to be partnering in bringing Jesus to Wolverhampton through that incredible young family. Opening up me again, that's the series we're in, and the thought behind that is that you and I have been given a a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, a major disruption. Everything's been shut down or put on pause. All the things that were once foundational to us in our our daily lives, they've all seismically shifted. The things that gave us our identity, the things that gave us our security, our jobs, our savings, our relationships. Overnight, we've all learned how quickly those things can just go away. And so my challenge, actually it's it's not my challenge, it's the oft-repeated scriptural challenge, is to not waste this crisis, but to use this time, as the Apostle Paul says, to examine ourselves, to to open ourselves up, to take a look under the hood at at some of our issues and, and seek after real change in our lives so that we emerge from quarantine different people than we went in. So far, we've looked at two major propensities that we have. The first is our predisposition to hide and blame. The second thing we looked at, and this life pause is the best time to do it, is our inclination towards being discontent, which is driven often by our constant comparison nature. And that results in us not pursuing what God has or, or enjoying what He's given us or, or how He's equipped us. Instead, we spend our lives chasing after the wind. Now, here's the thing. I think you can tell from just those first two topics here that we're not going after the light and airy, if you will. I, I don't want to live my life blaming others for my own crud and repeating the same mistakes over and over again. I'd like to fix me or, or better put, maybe allow God to fix me. And I don't want to waste the years I've got left chasing after the wind. I'd like the Spirit of God, which Jesus said was available to me. and In fact, He said it would dwell within me. I would like His Spirit to transform me. Now, here's the key. What I'm going after here and what I would love for you to join me on the journey with is not behavioral modification. What I'm going after might, in fact, should result in changed behaviors, but that's not the pursuit. Let's be honest. The church for years has prided itself on being a behavioral modifier. In fact, in some sense, that's what every religious system requires, right? It's their calling card. You look up the religion and you can find the behavior that you have to change in order to be deemed good enough or righteous enough or forgiven enough or holy enough. But behavioral modification is not my goal. See, that's kind of like a doctor treating the fever in a sense. So you got a 101 degree fever? Well, get in an ice bath until the fever goes down. Okay, doc, got it. Go home, get in the bath, fever goes down. I get out of the ice bath and guess what happens? Fever goes up. Call the doc back. Doc, I got the fever down, but as soon as they get to the ice bath, it goes up. What's the doctor say? Get back in the ice bath. And you know, I'm going to be going, dude, I've lost feeling in my toes. My lips are blue. I don't want to get in the ice bath. Isn't there something that you can do to treat what's going on inside me that's causing the fever outside? See, look, if the goal was behavioral modification, then our current quarantine is the perfect place for us because if I just stay put here in quarantine, well, how much could go wrong? I 
I can't offend anyone if I'm locked down here. And in fact, I can't even offend God too much. From a religious point of view, heck, if I, if I want to limit my sin issues, then I'll, I'll just stay put here in the house. But you know what, though? I, I probably better cancel my cable and my internet so I'm not tempted to watch anything. And then I should probably pull the drapes shut so just in case my neighbor gets a new car or something. I, I don't want to get envious and I better relegate the kids to the basement because, you know, they, t- they tend to frustrate me, and then I might say something I shouldn't. And I-, I guess, you know, maybe I'll just have my wife wear a tunic so I don't have any impure thoughts, even though she's my wife and probably isn't the worst thing if I have a few impure thoughts. Or maybe, I don't know, I'm kind of confused by it. Let me see where it all leads. Religious systems and behavioral modification. This morning, I want to introduce you to a better way, a a higher calling. Jesus, who in some ways was the most irreligious figure that's ever lived, at least when it came to things like this, Jesus was not impressed by outward appearances or religious piety. In fact, he doesn't really call us to monitor our outward behaviors at least not nearly as much as he calls us to monitor something else. See, Jesus didn't come to treat a fever, but instead he challenges us to monitor and change something much more significant and life-altering. And I have to tell you guys, it's the perfect pandemic teaching. And I know you're going to remember it because it has to do, believe it or not, with the importance of washing your hands. Check this out. Both Matthew and Mark record what happened. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they asked. If you've spent any time in the Scriptures, you know just about every time the Pharisees and the teachers of the law come to ask Jesus a question, it's not because they're looking for an answer, but usually they're trying to trip him up on something. And so they said to him, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, how many times have you heard that over the last three months, how important it is to wash your hands? I'm pretty sure at this point I have washed my hands more in 2020 than I did in the preceding decade. I literally have a bottle of Purell on my desk and in my car. But that's not what the Pharisees were referring to here. It wasn't a hygiene issue. They were referencing something they called the tradition of the elders, now, just by way of quick background here, you may be familiar with the Torah. Maybe you've heard of that term before. The Torah, that was the Hebrew, and is the Hebrew Bible, oftentimes traditionally referring to the first five books of Moses, the ones that are in your Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's another compl- compilation of writings in Judaism. That's known as the Talmud. Now, the Talmud is another compilation, but this time of historic rabbis discussing or debating what the Torah means. Now, the Talmud states that Moses received from God not just written commands, the ones you're familiar with, but oral ones, which became known as the tradition of the elders. And over time, these oral commands, which were not to be written down, in order to protect those oral commands to ensure that no one violated them or came close to them, Law after law after law after law was added to them. And the Pharisees became the enforcers of all of these new laws and of all of those traditions. 
One of these laws that was that you had to go through a ceremonial washing of your hands for various reasons. One was to ensure you didn't accidentally violate a dietary law by having something forbidden uh, on your hands and accidentally getting it into your mouth. Another reason was that if you had maybe touched a Gentile that day, you had been defiled, and, and there was a prescription, a prescribed ceremony to detoxify, in a sense, your Gentile touch. And of course, like most religious traditions do, this took on, over time, greater and greater importance. In fact, I came across this really fascinating. One very famous rabbi of the day actually wrote, Whosoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his common food with rinsed hands may rest assured that he shall obtain eternal life. That's how important this tradition of the elders be became. Some of you guys know how this happens. You've lived under this kind of religious system where it, it takes on sacramental meaning that there's some kind of religious act that you can do to impress God or either save or, or conversely condemn yourself. But of course, Jesus, he's not like other religious figures. Jesus is not buying into this. See, Jesus knows that it is he who is coming to the world to save the world. He's going to the cross to pay the price for the sins of man. And so he knows how ridiculous it is to think that someone is made right or proved wrong through obedience to the religious traditions of men. And so here's what Jesus says to them. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition?" In other words, why do you break the written commands of God? Why do you try and get around those commands of God through religious traditions of men? And then he gives them a pretty amazing example. He says, for God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is, quote, devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now, let me just back up and explain this. It's pretty interesting. What had sprung up was a tradition of the elders that if you took any possessions that you had and you took them and dedicated them to God, pronounced that publicly, that these were going to be used for God's purposes, then whatever that was that you pronounced that over, that, that was now exempt from being used for any other purpose. And so religious people would go around pronouncing over their things, well, this, this, this is set aside for the purposes of God, which, by the way, I'm free to determine what those purposes are, but they can't be used for my parents because I've, I've set them aside for God. And so Jesus just, I mean, you can see how much he hates this, and he looks at them, and he yells, you hypocrites, exclamation point noted. He refers to a prophet that they would have been familiar with, Israel's great prophet Isaiah. And he goes, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And so now, as you can imagine, a crowd starts to gather. Jesus 
just started yelling at some of the religious leaders, calling these guys, the guys in charge, hypocrites. And in a sense, he's pulling down the whole religious system that they have used to elevate themselves in power and oppress all the people underneath them. And so as the crowd begins to gather, Jesus addresses them. He says, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. That is not God's primary concern. God is not sitting around going, you know, I'm watching. You might have accidentally picked up some bacon earlier today, or maybe you brushed up against a Gentile at the, uh, Gentile at the market, and now somehow you're going to accidentally get that stuff into your mouth. To get. This is a religious system. That is not how God works. God is not up there looking for ways to condemn you. But what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Jesus flips the script, which sounds good. Again, someone put this on a macrame, hang it in the church office. But if you're thinking that sounds great, but Jesus, what does that mean? Well, then you're not alone because the disciples had no clue either. Matthew records that they didn't get it. And of course, Peter, Peter never shy. Peter, he actually walks up to Jesus as they're leaving the crowd and says, uh, Jesus, could you explain this parable to us? Great stuff, Jesus. Love when you shot. Oh, boy, you shut those guys up. But what did that mean? To which Jesus replies, and I think it's kind of funny, are you still so dull Jesus asked them, guys, I'm surprised that you haven't picked up on this yet, but I'm going to explain it to you again. Since you're kind of dull, actually, I'm going to start with the basics of how things work. He said, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out the body? Now, this is, you know, this is not metaphorical. Every parent of a kid who's eaten a Lego knows this. Whatever goes in is coming out, sometimes painfully. And so Jesus goes, we're going to start here at the basics. You guys know this, right? You can almost see Peter looking over at, at Matthew and going, well, hey, you remember that time, that one time, Matthew, that donkey of yours ate that burlap bag of oats with the burlap? You remember that bag came out? Ooh, that was nasty. In other words, Jesus is saying to him, listen, if by some chance or accident you were to break a dietary law, if somehow unwillingly you had some bacon grease on your hands and, and you accidentally ate it, you know what the result of that's going to be, don't you? See, in their mind, they thought it was eternal damn, damnation. And Jesus goes, no, it's just going to come out the other end. An accidental violation of the dietary law, that's not your problem. God's not holding that against you. But, and here it comes again, it's a really important, big and gigantic but, but, but the things that come out of a person's mouth, they come from the heart, and it's these things that defile them. You see, the issue is not what you ate. The issue is not on the outside. The issue has to do with your heart. You don't have an intake problem. You have an output problem, and it all starts with your heart. You see, that's what's defiling you. That's what's causing all the problems a distance between you and God, a debt that you owe Him. And what are those things? Well, for out of the heart 
come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. All of these things, they come from, from your heart. And they're all things you do to one another, that you do to other people. These things first, first they originated in your heart. And Jesus says these are the things that defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands, come on, guys, that, that's, that's not it. That's not what defiles you. Guys, you don't have a fever issue, Jesus would say to them. You've got a deeper issue. There's something wrong at a deeper level. The fever is just simply an indicator of the problem. Maybe for you and I, we don't have relational issues. We have heart issues. Maybe we don't have jealousy issues. We have a heart issue. Maybe we don't have a marriage issue or a job issue or a parenting issue. And you might, and I don't want to minimize that. But they might also spring from a heart issue. Religious traditions are important. I love the Christmas Eve service. But oftentimes, they're mostly important to us and of little concern to God. What matters to God, how you treat others, which springs from your heart, that's what matters to God. And so I think what Jesus would say we should be monitoring is not just our outward expressions, but we need to start tracking what's going on internally, looking under the hood. Why do we do these things? Why do we say these things? See, if we get the heart right, if we get the inside right, the outside changes. Track with me now. So the goal is not to bite my lip. Like, like when my wife comes to me and says something that bothers me, the ultimate goal is not just to not respond. The goal is to examine my heart and ask myself difficult questions about why it is that I feel the need to make sure I get the last word in, or, or why is it that I need to make sure that she knows that I'm right? Why is it that I, in a sense, it bothers me so much? Why is it that what she said so easily offended me? What's going on in me? The goal isn't to, prevent, uh, to close the drapes, to prevent from being jealous over my neighbor's new car. The question is, what's going on in my heart that somehow his success had be became a threat to me? And now, this is the level that I want to explore together over the next few weeks. I'm going to close with one, one thing to look at today, and I think it's timely. In fact, I know it's timely. Something that goes on in our hearts and it has a tendency to explode out of our mouths and recently onto the pages of our social media accounts. And I think Jesus would say, this is what's defiling you. This is what's putting you, even my church, at odds with me. As I've examined it and looked at my own heart, as I've monitored my own heart in relation to this issue, it really has helped me. Now, unless you've been living under a rock over the last few weeks, you have to have noticed that as this pandemic crisis has been going on, um, it is not, like a good crisis should, bringing people together. Instead, and, and this is so strange to me, what seems to be happening, what's coming out of our mouths, which is getting birthed in our hearts, are all kinds of nasty, divisive, and troubling words and conclusions. We've gotten really good 
during this pandemic at washing our hands. We're super careful about not putting anything into our bodies that could hurt us, but gosh, it seems like we really don't care what's coming out of our mouths that could hurt others. Why is that? Why? Why? Why is it that somehow in, in trying to emerge from the debilitating devastation that all of us would agree this pandemic has caused, why is it that we have somehow broken down into our old, very familiar political camps and then kind of moved to extremes on both ends? For example, if you want to take things a little slow, proceed with caution, do everything we can to to ensure that there's not a significant second wave or loss of life. Well, then, according to half of my friends, you're a snowflake, you're a sheep, you live in fear, and you have no respect for an individual's rights. If, on the other hand, you understandably want to get the country open again because people really are suffering not just massive economic loss, but mental and emotional stress as well, well, then you don't care about older people, and you clearly value money over lives. I am literally now on social media watching people in our town wish the disease on one another. What? What is going on? What, what has happened to us? Where is this coming from? What is going on in our hearts that has become, that, that be, because somebody disagrees with us or has a different opinion than us, what is it that makes us excoriate them? And shouldn't those of us who want to follow Jesus, shouldn't we reflect something different? Question number one for reflection this week. I know you have the time on your hands. If week one's question was, why do I blame? If week two was, why do I compare? Then I think week three is, what's going on in my heart that makes me so angry when people disagree with what I think? Why do I take everything so personally? I mean, this current issue is a really good place to start. What's going on in your heart? Where's the vitriol coming from? What I would tell you is every time you wash your hands this week so you can protect, you know, make sure, you know, nothing bad goes in, every time you wash your hands this week, the question that I want to ring in your ears in regards to the pandemic is, heck, my hands are clean, how's my heart? Especially right now towards those who don't think like I do. Guys, Jesus, in regard to all of the laws and commandments and oral traditions, Jesus said, I'm giving you a new one, a different one. In fact, Jesus said, all of the other laws, all of the prophets hang on this one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You can keep washing your hands. You can keep religious traditions if you want. But they don't impress me. But if you don't start loving your neighbor, you're wasting your time. Here's, here's what Paul said about love. You know it. You've heard it before. He said that love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It, it doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. 
Love doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with truth. It always protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. This is what springs from a transformed heart. But, just honestly, I don't see it coming out of too many mouths these days. In fact, just in closing, I want to hone in on one of these characteristics that I think is the key. Paul says that love always trusts and always hopes. You know what I take that to mean? It means that love gives the benefit of the doubt to others. Love gives the benefit of the doubt to others. Now, understanding this in my relationships has changed everything. I think my wife Joan would tell you that once we got this one right, it transformed our marriage. It's simple. In fact, it's, it's Q-tip one, quarantine tip one for this week. Give others the benefit of the doubt. What do I mean by that? It's simple. Don't impute to them bad motive. Don't perceive disagreements as personal insults. In my re relationship with Joan, it, it means if she says something that runs through all of my various emotional and historical filters and somehow gets to my heart and says, see, she's disrespecting you or she said something mean, I have to stop. I have to examine my own heart and figure out, why did I take it that way? Why am I so sensitive? Why do I have such a filter? So now we do this with each other. When we say something that hurts the other, we each give each other the benefit of the doubt. I know when she says something, there's a, a little filter that goes off in me now that goes, I know she didn't mean it that way. When I say something that hurts her, I know I, she's told me, you know, I know you didn't mean it that way. That's what love does. Love assumes the best. Love hopes for the best. Love is not easily angered. It doesn't get easily offended. Maybe someone, is it possible that someone really is concerned that opening up too quickly could prove devastating to individual lives and to our country overall? Maybe they're not just a socialist leveraging the crisis to move a political agenda. Maybe someone who wants to open up more aggressively is suffering severe hardships because of all the restrictions. Their lives are unraveling. Everything they've built over 30 years is unwinding. Maybe they actually do love people and value life and think you can open safely. I know, I've lived long enough to know that this might be Pollyanna thinking for, for the community at large, but, but for those of us who want to follow Jesus, we're called to be the salt of the earth. Salt in the first century was used to preserve food, to keep it from decay. That's our role right now more than ever, to be the salt of the earth. Q-tip one this week. Love. Give others the benefit of the doubt. Here's Q-tip two. Paul said that we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Q-tip two is to take every thought captive. Don't just give, give words to what your heart is saying or feeling. We don't just speak what comes into our minds. This is how we defile ourselves. 
It reveals our hearts, which so often are not soft. Instead, this week, take whatever it is you're thinking, whatever it is you're feeling, and instead of just giving voice to it, instead of typing it out, tame it. Wrestle it to the ground and make it obedient to Jesus' command to love. Now listen to me. This works in, in, in your marriage. This will work in parenting your kids. This will work in dealing with your boss, your neighbor, and all your friends on Facebook too. Paul, speaking of salt, he, he writes to the Colossians. He says, listen, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Wouldn't that be a gift right now, to know how to answer everyone? You see, we can be the most religious people on earth. We can be a nice church, big steeple, good worship. The pastor over Mender Hills, he's so-so. But if we're not salt in our marriages, our homes, our offices, and right now, more than ever, in this community, I'm not sure Jesus is all that interested in what we're up to. Mendham Hills, this week, listen, guys, wash your hands. <laughs> Maybe now more than ever, it's important to watch what you put into your mouth. But we have bigger issues. This week, Let's examine our hearts and honor God with those. Let's monitor the internal, what's going on in here. Why do I take personal offense to a difference of opinion? Why must I constantly impute bad motive? And in so doing, let's love one another. Give one another the benefit of the doubt. Presume good and right motive. And let's let what comes out of our mouths be the salt that our local communities need like never before. Mendham Hills, love one another, and I'll see you back here next week.